prayed for revival. You've read about reformation. It's time to start a revolution. God's business revolution is starting now. Join us as we talk about God using business owners, entrepreneurs, and marketplace leaders. Let's talk about God using you. Welcome to God's business revolution. Hello, I hope everybody is having an absolutely fantastic day. I want to take a few minutes and we are going to chat about gospel adjectives. These are adjectives that describe the gospel, words that describe the gospel. Now, one of the words that seems to be mentioned a lot in describing the gospel some people take it negative and some people take it positive, and that is the word prosperity. And they, there is re, something is referred to as the prosperity gospel. Most of the time when I've heard that phrase, I have heard it in a negative context. It's being labeling the gospel as something that's negative and shouldn't be and usually pertains specifically to somebody's teaching at the time that that person is sharing about. So that's one word that's often used. So if that's not the right word to use when we're talking about the gospel, then what other words would be appropriate adjectives to describe the gospel? I've got some we're going to share with you here. We're going to go through several scriptures. We're going to see what one key adjective is that the Bible itself uses to describe the gospel. So let's just say for a minute that it's not a prosperity gospel, or it isn't. I don't know. So what's left? Well, what's the opposite of prosperity? Could it be the poverty gospel? I suppose that's a possibility, or is it? Well, if it's not the poverty gospel or the prosperity gospel, well, what about something right down the middle? How about the mediocre gospel? I can guarantee you that it's probably not the mediocre gospel. Mediocre, it's a word. At, at best, the word mediocre means average, middle of the road, uninspired, undistinguished, indifferent, unexceptional, um, run-of-the-mill, pedestrian, lackluster, forgettable. Those are not words that I would use to describe the gospel. Now, when I think of mediocre, there's another word I think of, and that's the word lukewarm. And if you were born in the church any time in the last two days, you know that the word lukewarm is mentioned in Revelation 3. Let me just read this passage to you, because we're going to refer to this passage actually a couple times. But I know that if you've been around the church for a while, you know this passage. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We'll come back to the rest of this in a minute because that was Revelation 3, 14 through 16. We're actually going to come back to verse 17 here in a few minutes. But first, I want to cover this piece really quick. And that is, it's really simple, is that it's obviously not the mediocre gospel. It is, that is something that very clearly that we do not need to embrace because the gospel is powerful. The gospel is a powerful message. It is absolutely second to none. And so the fact that we would even kid around or joke around calling it the mediocre gospel uh, should be a good laugh. And that's about it. 
So let's work backwards then. If it's not a mediocre gospel, could it possibly be a poverty gospel? Now, you've known that there are people who have taken vows of poverty. And so the question is, is it a, is it a gospel of poverty? Well, I've got a couple questions because there seems to be some inconsistencies if we're going to call the gospel a gospel of poverty. And I believe some people legitimately do believe that it is one. And I've, I don't. I believe that the Bible has some very specific things to say about poverty. Well, I don't believe it. I know it because I can read them. Here's a couple things please keep in mind about poverty. Is that, you know, poverty is, has been referred to as a curse. Now, that's a strong word. But do yourself a favor. Read Deuteronomy 28, where it talks about what the curse is and what happens when you're not subject to the law. Read Deuteronomy 28 and tell me if any of that sounds like poverty. It's too long for us to get into on this short podcast, but you need to know what Deuteronomy 28 says, both what the curses and the blessings are that are listed there in Deuteronomy 28. So what did Jesus have to say about poverty. Well, it's interesting. He said he came to preach the good news to the poor. Okay. I've often asked myself, and I've asked other people this too, you know, in that passage where he's quoting Isaiah, he says he's come to preach the good news to the poor. Well, there's healing and some other stuff in there. And I've often wondered, why is it that the poor have to sit and listen to a preacher? What is it about the fact that the poor have to sit and listen to a preacher? That's a great question. We're going to come back to that, but here's another thing I want you to think about is this, is that even those folks those who feel like the gospel might be a poverty gospel, they are the first to also say that we're supposed to take care of the poor. We're supposed to feed the poor. We're supposed to clothe the poor, as you do in the least of these. So, my question is, is if the, is if the Bible commands us to take care of the poor. In other words, we're supposed to provide for the poor. In fact, we're supposed to make sure that the poor then have what they need so they're not so they not poor. We're commanded to reverse poverty, in effect, right? So if we're commanded to reverse poverty, how could the gospel be a poverty gospel? How could we actually take poverty seriously as an option? If we're commanded, if we're actually commanded to reverse it. And what is this piece where it says he preaches the good news to the poor? Let's jump real quick. As far as preaching to the poor is concerned, let's jump real quick to Romans to Romans Romans ten. Um, I want to take a look at Romans ten and starting with um, oh, let's start with verse a um, fourteen. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they, they hear without a preacher? And sh- how shall they preach except be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yea, Yes, verily, their sound went to all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. This is really simple. 
there is a message that we have to deliver. So faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have to deliver the word of God. This, this the good news that we are supposed to that we're supposed to bring to the that we're supposed to bring to the poor. That is a, that is referred to in uh, the, when Jesus was actually in the temple reading from the book of Isaiah, when he says that he has come to preach the good news, to bring the good news to the poor, so the gospel to the poor. That's something that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pour ourselves out, and we're supposed to do it. Uh, we're supposed to do it by preaching, declaring, delivering the message to them. We're supposed to deliver faith to them. Now, here's the th- here is kind of the key to that: is this is that the reason we're supposed to preach to them, the reason we should preach good news to the poor, is because poverty is a mindset. Poverty, poverty is a mindset, and it, with with that being the case, what happens is this: if you preach faith, which comes by hearing, so preaching produces hearing the word of God, which produces which produces faith. Faith produces action and change. You see, there's something there that has to take place within us when we hear the Word of God. If we don't actually change when we hear the Word of God, if that faith process doesn't actually, doesn't actually promote change, then we are not, we're not making a difference. And change is transformation. And transformation comes by renewing our mind. You see, this is a mindset. This whole thing, this poverty, is a mindset and we're, Jesus says, I've got a different mindset for you. I came to preach the good news, this gospel, the mindset of the good news, the mindset of the gospel. I've come to preach that to the poor. So I need to express that. You need to preach it for me. You need to pour that out so that they can have the faith and they can hear the word of God. And they can be transformed by the renewing of their mind. It's a, it's a mindset that they have. You see, you can be broke but you don't have to be poor. A good friend of mine told me that a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, that is so good. That phrase is so good. I'm going to steal it. I mean, borrow it. You can be broke, but that doesn't mean you have to have the poverty mindset. You can be rich, but you can be poor. In fact, go back to Revelations 3 that we were reading earlier, and let's go to the next verse. Go to verse 17, 317. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable. (laughs) I'm sorry, that you are wretched, (laughs) poor, blind, and naked. I can't even pronounce that word. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go for it right now. So the Bottom line is that you can be rich, but you can still be poor. And that's an interesting concept if you think about it. So it's got to be mindset. It's got to be this poverty is a mindset. It's a mindset that has to be broken. It's a mindset that is broken by the gospel, by the good news. Again, if we're supposed to change the status of those who are poor, we're supposed to transform, we're supposed to transform their mindset. 
So let's look here a little bit, as long as we're in Revelation 3. Let's look at that next verse and let's see what it says, because it says some really interesting things. And I'm not going to dwell on it a long time here, but I would like for you to listen to it as we share it. And just expose a couple things here that are mentioned, just to get you thinking a little bit, because there are some interesting words that are used here. First, verse 17 says, For you say I'm rich, I've, I've, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, um, uh, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness not to be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. As we know, the book of Revelation is mostly, is, 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 there's a lot of symbolism in the, book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation. So what, I want to point out a couple words here, just, to, just in case we th- we're thinking that there may be some symbolism. First of all, in researching the meaning of these words, where it says, I counsel you to buy from me, is exactly what that says. I, I, I re- highly recommend that you buy from me gold refined by fire. What that means is gold refined gold pieces. Gold that has been through the fire, that's the purest it could possibly be. Buy from me pure gold. That's exactly what the line says. What's even more interesting is that the very next phrase, so that you may be rich, is exactly the same thing too. There is does not seem to be any double meaning of the word rich there in the in the uh in the text and so in the definition of the original greek word especially rich means rich okay i, I it's, it's so i i don't know um but that's what it says so it's like let me so it's almost like he's saying and i'm let me show you what let me show you what to do let me show you to go this is you need the you need pure gold don't mess with verse 17 um don't mess with this stuff with stuff you need to go for things that provide real wealth because stuff doesn't provide wealth but buy from me pure gold now is that saying that we're supposed to buy gold from god or from an angel i don't know i'm just throwing this out here i'll we'll dive into that you and i'll dive into that later personally I'm just reading the scripture because this is very interesting, the words that are used. Because it continues and says that in white garments you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Well, the salve to anoint your eyes, that's pretty clear. Uh, the salve there that they're kind of mentioned about is a white paste, is an anointing, this is something that actually would, would heal, that they would put over your eyes to heal your eyes. And the um, and the anointing there is literally the anointing so that you can see and there could very easily be a metaphorical explanation here of the word see to see in the spiritual to this much more so than those other than those other words what's the uh, the other interesting thing here though is the word where it says white garments you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness and may not be seen the word clothe is the is the one that seems to have the most dynamic meaning behind it the word clothe here means like an outer garment to cover and protect the inside or palisades where it's a fence surrounding something where you actually are gathering something in and actually the word invest is part of this definition too where you're almost like gathering stuff to invest and protecting it i i, I again this makes me stop and think. 
what is actually being said here in these verses. And if we're properly, and they say, okay, well, you think you're rich, but you're not, but let me tell you how to really be rich. Is that, is, is that what it's saying? I mean, literally, is that what it's saying? I don't know. But this is a very, very interesting verse. Here's something that's even more interesting. Let's go back to Romans 10. We went through Romans 10, and we looked at Romans 10, and we stopped, and we didn't read verse 15. So verse 15, yeah, we did read, yeah, we, we read verse 15, I'm sorry. And how shall they preach, except they be sent, as it is written in Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Here we have it. We finally found, we finally found our adjective that we need to use for describing the gospel. It's the gospel of peace. It's the peace gospel. Awesome. In fact, you know what? The description is there in Isaiah 52, and the exact same description is again quoted again in Ephesians 6. And the word for peace in Ephesians and Romans is arene, and the word peace in Isaiah 52 is shalom. Well, we've all heard the word shalom before. I think we have anyway. The word, the word shalom means wholeness, nothing missing, nothing broken, everything that you could meet, possibly need, a completeness. It means prosperity. It's a greeting that would be that would be greeted uh, that that the people are greeted with still today. I believe. I am not a Hebrew scholar, and I don't play one on TV. But I do know what the word shalom means. Arene, the Greek word, ironically means almost the exact same thing. It means this wholeness. It means nothing missing, nothing broken. It means this. Uh, uh, it, it more specifically, arene means. Um, this restoration piece. It means to be redeemed or to bought and to be made whole again or to be made prosperous again or prosperity. So if we read these verses where it calls it a gospel of peace and we replace it with the definition that we just read of Irene and of Shalom, then it reads this, that it is a gospel of wholeness, a gospel of restoration, a gospel of completeness, a gospel of prosperity. That's what the word means. I can't change that. I definitely can't change what that word means. If you don't believe me, pull out your Strong's Concordance definition thing and look up Irene and Shalom and see what it says. See what it says for yourself. Now, I do have a problem with some of this definition of what people call the prosperity gospel so let's just let's just talk about that right now because there are there's this prosperity gospel thing and the way people refer to it is usually if somebody's referring to the prosperity gospel and they are defining what it is and saying that it's not correct they're saying that there is a uh, that it's a name it and claim it thing and that the prosperity gospel is something that you name and claim. And that if you say something, that it's yours and, and that's just all there is to it. And God's going to give it to you because you declared it and you said it. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I, I will say this, that if you name it and claim it, you definitely 
definitely cannot name and claim anything that is contrary to the Word of God or contrary to Scripture. That's impossible. That's, that's definitely not going to work. So, for example, you cannot name and claim, I'm going to marry that uh, person over there, uh, even though they're married to somebody else right now. Nope, that doesn't work. That doesn't, that's definitely not part of it. That's definitely not scriptural. Oh, you know what? I declare that that guy is dead over there. I want him dead. I want him gone. Uh, that doesn't work either. That's called murder. So you can't be in a situation where if you name it or claim it, it goes contrary to, it goes contrary to the word of God. I think a lot of people kind of look at this name and claim it thing and they think about, they think about um, naming and claiming money, naming and claiming wherewithal coming in. Well, that's quite interesting because we just got done talking about poverty and about the fact we're supposed to eradicate it and we're supposed to get rid of it. Well, here's the funny thing. What it takes to eradicate po- poverty is resources, and that we have to have resources to uh, to take care of the poor, to take care of the homeless, the orphans, the widows. We need resources to do that. Now, can God drop a million bucks into into your bank account or my bank account? Well, yeah, He can do it. Is He likely to do it? If you even say yes, if you say no or you say yes, you cannot, you, you have to reach, you do not have the authority to say that. You do not have the authority, I do not have the authority to decide or to say what God can do or what God will do. That's up to God. If it wasn't totally up to God whether or not he wants to put a million bucks in anybody's bank account overnight, then he's not God and you don't see him as one. That's the bottom line. God has to be able to do anything he wants to do at any point in time or he's not, or he's not God. So let's look at this name it and claim it thing a little bit more from a scriptural standpoint as we dig into this. Because this is really, really interesting. So if we could find an instance of naming it and claiming it in scripture, would that make it valid? If we, if, if we could, and maybe not the million bucks, but maybe, let's just say something noble and something good, like a uh, hundred bucks to feed the homeless person down the street. That you want to name it and claim it, that that's something good. If we can find something, it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's scriptural. But if we could find scripture that says, that conceptually says that the principle of name it and claim it works in a certain instance, well then maybe, then, then we'd have to at least, we would have to at least admit that the principle in certain circumstances of name it and claim it works, right? So let's look at Mark eleven twenty two through 24. Have faith in God, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you that if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and has no doubt in his heart, but believes that it will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whoa. Is that what they just said? 
Jesus said, have faith in God or have the God kind of faith. Truly, I tell you that if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and has no doubt in his heart, but believes that it will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Okay. Let's say for a minute that this, well, that's what it says. So what could possibly be, oh, I know, I know. This, how, this, this, God, God doesn't do this anymore. God, this, 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 is the, this was left for the apostles. This type of thing doesn't happen anymore. This type of thing has stopped. There are those who say that. There are those who believe that this verse and things like this in the Bible were meant for that time, that time only, because they didn't have scripture and they needed the miraculous signs. I'll give you that. I'll give you that argument. Not necessarily saying that I agree with it, but I'm going to give you that argument. So what we need to find then is we need to find in scripture an instance where somebody names something and claims it and it's biblical and it's true and it's still being used today on a regular basis so we have to find something that is still that is a name it and claim it where we where it's being used today where the church practically universal would agree with this with 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 this name it and claim it concept the way it's used it's true and if we if we show at least one name it and claim it thing, then we have to at least concede that at some point in time, somewhere, this name it and claim it thing works. Now, I'm not saying that we need to go around, once again, don't get me wrong, we don't need to go around naming and claiming a million dollars into our bank account overnight. That's not necessarily godly. We've we've covered that over and over again. But the principle of speaking something and believing it, where is, is just, just one more, just give me one more place in scripture. That's all we're looking for is one more place in scripture. If we can't find it, it's not there. Then I, then I would let you have the argument that this verse in Matthew was for that day. And that, and that, then that naming something, speaking something and believing it and, and, and receiving it by faith in your heart, is was only for, was only for biblical times and not now. Let's go back to Romans ten. We've already read Romans ten, and that's where it says, you know, so faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. In verse seventeen, go all the way back up to verse eight. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee. Oh yeah, I'm giving you the good old King James here just to make sure we're clear on what it says because there's some people that also believe that King James is the only way to go. So we'll just read it straight out of the King James. Verse 8 of Romans 10, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Wait a second, did that just say word of faith that we preach? Word of faith. Word of faith isn't the right thing here. Surely the Bible didn't say that. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart the man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
Let me read all that again. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. The word is there. The word is present. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's the faith that they preach. So if you confess, if you say, if you speak with your mouth and then believe with your heart that if you say it and then you receive it, if you name it out loud and then you claim it in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart, man believes under righteousness and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. That sounds like you say it, and you believe it, and you receive it. Do I dare say that the simple prayer of salvation is a name it and claim it prayer? I don't know. It's my job to make you think. It's my job to make you reflect. I'm not going to draw your conclusions for you. You have to draw your conclusions. Here's what I can tell you about the gospel. If the gospel is anything, the gospel is a gospel of resource. It is a gospel of resource because it provides for you salvation and righteousness. It's a gospel of resource for you because it provides the preaching, the good news to the poor, to transform a poverty mindset. It's a gospel of resource because if we're to take care of the poor, if we are to make disciples of nations, we are to do all those things, we have to have resources to do those things. In fact, when God created the earth, the first thing he created was the resources for man to use. He created the resources even before he created man. And then what did he tell man to do? He said, be fruitful and multiply the resources that I've given you. If nothing else, the gospel is a gospel of unlimited, truly powerful resource that has to be tapped into. You have to agree with me on that, that the gospel Jesus Christ, the good news, the word of God, is full of unlimited resource. Study to show yourself to prove unto God. We could give unlimited scriptures to show how the word of God, the gospel, and of course God himself, is your ultimate resource. So I would just ask that when you take things into consideration, when you take these things in, in, in consideration as far as the adjectives of the gospel, when you hear things like poverty gospel, or you hear things like prosperity gospel, that you define them and you really think them, you really think them through. More importantly, have respect for men and women of God who may not agree with you 100%. I just threw some crazy things out here that actually will make everybody think, I believe. So, at the end of the day, we have to come together and agree that this is a resource gospel. And that we have what we need to get done 
what he has called us to do. So, whether it's in business or whether it's in life, and quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, business is life. In fact, those verses in Revelation just talked that we talked about in Revelation 3, verses 17 and 18, actually talk about how to invest properly. Maybe it's metaphorical, sure, but it's talking about it. So there is a, the Bible has this strong kinship for the marketplace. It's got this strong kinship for business. So remember, whether you're a business leader, an entrepreneur, whether you spend money in the marketplace, work in the marketplace, it doesn't make any difference. The gospel is a resource gospel to provide what you need and to help you minister to those who are in need. God bless you. Have an awesome, awesome day. Thank you for listening and thank you for joining God's Business Revolution. Be sure to follow us on social media and online at www.godsbusinessrevolution.com.